As we come to this, and we've been in this a couple of weeks, Romans 12, um, again, I was just struck this way, struck this week with just how awesome these two verses are. And I've about decided if I preach 12 sermons on Romans 12, 1 and 2, I might begin to approach some sort of satisfaction in my own heart. Uh, this is where we all are. You know, preachers always want to get up and give a timely word. I can't give you a more timely word than Romans 12, 1 and 2 because everybody in the house, save, you know, a few of our children, have understood the grace of God in Romans 1 through 11. We've all done that. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're the children of God and we sing and pray and rejoice in Him for what He has done. But when you come to Romans 12, 1 and 2, now it's our turn to respond and it's a response that we must do. Paul says, I urge you, and he's not asking, you understand. It's something that is necessary for us to do, and it's not a one-time-and-done sort of thing. It's a way of living. Unfortunately, it's not the way of living that we find ourselves so often. We so often find ourselves living a different way, a self-centered way, a sinful way and not the way of our Savior that He has marked out for us so clearly. And so I really want you to pour your hearts into Romans 12, 1 and 2. I, I, my goal this morning is to explain it so crystal clear. If, if we had a five-year-old listening this morning, they could tell you on the way home what it means to offer your life as a living sacrifice. I certainly want to be able to do that. Uh, but I really want you to understand this is where we all are. This is where you'll be in the morning when the alarm on your phone goes off and you wake up. This is where you will be. And I want all of us, including myself, to be found faithful in this. So Paul is calling us to this sacrifice. And again, I've, I've said these things over the last couple of weeks, but I, I want to continue to repeat them. We know it's spiritual language. There are no more sacrifices to offer. There's no more altar. I think Brother Cody shared that with us just a few weeks ago. We're people of the table. We're not people of the altar. When Christ laid down his life, you could throw that altar away. We were done. That sacrifice was so glorious and amazing and complete. There will no longer be any need for any sort of sacrifices. His sacrifice atoned for my sin that I did this week and that I will do next week. You understand. It was awesome. It paid for the sins of my great-grandfather and it will pay for the sins of my great-grandchildren. What Jesus did for us, He did fully and completely. And so when you look at verse 1 and you see that we're called to make a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, you understand all that's been done. You're living because of your faith in Christ. He brought you out of death and into life. Okay? You are a living sacrifice. And to say that we're to offer a holy sacrifice, sanctified or set apart for God, you understand that through Christ, you've been plucked out of a sea of sinners and you've been set before a Father and you've been received. You are holy. You are sanctified. You are sufficient. You are acceptable to God, right? And then that last thing, those two words kind of build that third word, living, holy, acceptable to God. You're acceptable to God because you're in Christ and for no other reason. 
And I want to emphasize that because you need to understand you can't make your sacrifice better. You didn't make it to begin with. He made it. And so this is kind of the mood that I got in this week. Lord, why would you want my sacrifice? What's it worth? To which my spirit quickly spoke in return. Nothing. It's not made better by you or more acceptable by you or more pleasing by you. It's made acceptable by Christ. You have a sufficient sacrifice. It's perfect because it's offered in Christ and through Christ and not through you or in you. We always want to clean up the sacrifice, don't we? That's where I was this week. And I just, again, I got the idea, oh, it's pitiful things that I bring to you this week, Lord. And he's like, no, it's not. You bring my son. Don't ever think of my son as pitiful or insignificant or unworthy. It's not you. It's him. And it's in him alone that we find our value and worth before the Father. I try to give you an illustration it's as if we have a sacrifice to give on Monday morning and we go home and it's sitting in the living room. And it's a spotless lamb. There's not a blemish on it. It's as white as snow. That nose on that thing is absolutely beautiful, pink and, and still wet. Bright-eyed. Just a beautiful animal. And your neighbor comes over and you go, where'd you get that? It's, it's not mine. Where'd you buy it? You, you can't buy it. Where'd you find it? It can't be found. Well, how come you have it? It was, it was given to me. It's the most beautiful animal I've ever seen in my life. I know. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. What are you to do with it? I'm to bring it and sacrifice it to the Lord come Monday morning. That's what I'm to do with it. So you understand when God calls you to a sacrifice, you've already been handed that sacrifice and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it in any way, shape or form. It's not up to you. It's not in you. It's not through you. It's all of Christ. And therefore, we rejoice that we have a sacrifice to bring because it's already been provided for by the Father. So this sacrifice that we bring, though, is our lives. And it's a response. He's giving us a spiritual illustration. We're responding to the mercies of God in the first 11 chapters. And so how is it that we respond? Well, the way in which we respond is we just give Him our lives in response to Him. We just hand Him the keys to every crack in every corner of our lives. Every little thought in our mind, we hand it over. Every little sound that passes through our ears, every smell that goes through our nose, every word that comes out of our mouth, everything we touch, every step we make, every heart beat of the heart and every breath that we take, we give it to God as an expression of worship. And I told you this, this is what we're talking about, worship. I appreciate you being here this morning. I really do. More of you should be here. Some can, I understand. But this is not true worship. If you'll notice the last part of verse 1, he says, this is your spiritual service of worship. This is it. When you give yourselves to God, that's worship. Again, we work hard to get the songs right. They ought to be theological. We, get, we do work hard to get your heart right. It ought to be humble and repentant. 
But worship takes place when you hand God the keys to your kingdom and your heart and your life. That's worship. You can do everything perfectly. You can sing beautifully. You can strike every note in time. But none of it is truly worship until God has you. And when you do that, you can sing out a key. You can play out a tune. You can stumble down the altar or the aisle if you want to. None of that matters because you've truly worshipped the Lord. You've given Him your life in every way. And again, that's not a one-time and, and done sort of thing. That's just the way in which we live as the people of God. I was reminded of this song. It was written by a lady, I can't pronounce her last name, but sometime in the mid-1800s. And we've sang this before. It's a really good song, but let me just read you this hymn. And the reason... I came across it. We were in worship with John last Sunday, and this is what we sang. And my heart just swelled up because I know where we are in Romans 12. And I was like, man, I can't, I can't find a better hymn than this. But listen to these words this lady wrote. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my will and make it thine, it shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Lord, I give my life to thee, thine forevermore to be. Lord, I give my life to thee, thine forevermore to be. That's a really good expression of Romans 12, 1, right? It's the all of everything, giving it to God, because of the mercies of God that you've experienced in your life. Now, that's the illustration. But I told you Paul goes on to a concrete action. He's, he's meaning something specific that in, in the way in which you offer the sacrifice. In fact, I want you to notice it's a not and then a do and then in the reason for it. So look at verse 2 and you'll get the negative first. And do not be. And stop there. We've got a negative thing to offer this sacrifice that you must do. Do not be conformed to this world, but here comes the positive. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be, but be. And here's the reason. Notice the last phrase. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So in other words... God ties through Paul two things together that you got to understand. Worship and the will of God. And the will of God must be accomplished in our life in order for us to worship God. See, he doesn't just leave it spiritual and say this, give your life to God. Well, I don't even know what that looks like. How do I know that I've done that? I've done that so many times. I don't even know if I'm doing it right. Paul's like, well, let me just clear all that up for you because I'm going to tie the worship and the will of God 
together so that you can understand it, what it looks like to live a life of worship, what it looks like to lay your life down on the altar to the glory of God. Now, the first thing you'll notice, look how he describes the will of God. Look at the very last few words, and I, I walked through that backward this morning. That which is good, that which is acceptable, and look at that last word if you get the NASB, that which is perfect. Now, before we get excited, you need to understand he's describing the will of God. It's good. Everything God desires and everything God does is good. Amen? Amen. But not only that, he goes on to say it is acceptable. Of course, it's acceptable. The will of God is always acceptable. The word goes on to describe it as even perfect. And we know that to be true. God does nothing that is imperfect. So here you and I are called to live in a way in tune or in line with the will of God in such that what we do and what we say becomes good, acceptable, even perfect and pleasing in the sight of God. Now that ought to immediately strike you as that is an impossibility. In fact, turn back with me to Romans 3 and look at verse 10. I'll show you how impossible this is. Remember where we're at? This is the sum of all humanity. Romans 3.10 There's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. So in other words, that describes who we are as a people separated from Christ. But here's a beautiful and wonderful thing about the gospel as you turn back to Romans 12. Now I've been called to give my life as a sacrifice to the Lord, i.e. I'm going to walk in such a way that glorifies the will of God. In other words, I'm going to do that which is good, acceptable, perfect in the sight of God. You see how amazing the gospel is? It's changed everything. I mean, this wasn't even a possibility for me. Now it's a reality for me. Now I can live in a way that's pleasing to God. Now I can do that which is good, that was never a desire in my heart before. Now I can actually walk in that which is good for the Father, good in His eyes, acceptable to Him. In other words... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father. How in the world am I going to do that? Well, you should understand that through the gospel, that, what, that is exactly what begins to take place in our life. We begin to walk in such a way that is in tune, in line, in harmony with the will of God in all things that we do. Now, I do want to clean up that phrase for you, and this is where I will turn in my notes because I don't want this to be confusing at all because I think the will of God has been ransacked and ruined by a whole lot of people that like to make it something mystical. It's like some bizarre thing that you've got to look under rocks to find and pray to the ends of the earth and hopefully if you find yourself in a bubblegum machine on the backside of China and stick a nickel in, the will of God rolls out. That's the way the will of God is described to us or portrayed to us and that's not it at all. I really get frustrated when you go to universities Christian universities. And they ask that question, what is the will of God for you? And I'm like, are you kidding me? You just trashed their life. 
Because that becomes the only focus in their life. So you've got to understand what the will of God is when we see it in the text. Now sometimes it comes across, very rarely, but it comes across as a calling. Paul says in a number of places, I'll quote you Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So according to the Apostle Paul, what am I supposed to be, Lord? What am I supposed to do? For the Apostle Paul, it was to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you that. Let me ask you this. Did he know that? At what point did that dawn on him? I believe it was on the day that he was walking down the road to kill Christians that the Lord revealed His will for him. When I think about this in respect to Jeremiah, this is what he said to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated or set you apart. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That was Jeremiah's, or that was the will of God for Jeremiah. Did he know that from birth? I don't think so. That phrase wasn't communicated to him until he was an adult. When I think about the will of God for my life, well, you know, I was a pharmacist. And I said, Lord, I will do anything for you except pastor an American church. That I am unwilling to do. You see, when we think about what God called us to do, and I set you spinning to try to discover that, man, I've set you on a rabbit chase. It may be a very long time for you to discover that, and it's only unique for a handful of people. For the overwhelming majority of people, it's not going to be unique in that sense. Just as wonderful and just as beautiful and just as perfect, but not unique in that sense. So when we think about the will of God, don't put it in a box and say, it's going to tell me exactly what I'm supposed to be. Because I've walked through three children that's gone off to college with that same question. And I'm like, relax. You'll know when it's time for you to know. And not until. So relax. The second thing is it's, it's to do a particular thing. And we get lost in this. Lord, what is it you want me to do? And when I think about this, I always think about Amos. Amos 7, like verse 14 is it for me. I absolutely love this passage because somebody's mocking Amos. And Amos responds to him that's mocking him. Listen, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. For I'm a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. His next words, now hear the word of the Lord. In other words, to do a particular thing, you pray endlessly about that. And Amos is standing out in the field and he's like, I'm a farmer, dude. I'm tending the flocks and, and minding the trees. And the Lord says, hey, go preach the word of God to my people. And he's like, okay. He wasn't out in the field begging God to reveal to him his grand will for his life. What is it I'm supposed to... He was farming. In other words, when it becomes to do a particular thing, you're going to know in the time of the Lord. I don't think that's it at all. Or go to a particular place. 
We pray endlessly, Lord, do I need to go here? Do I need to go there? And when you think about Abraham worshiping idols, when God called him and said, you go to a place that I will show you. Or you think about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, where Paul's like, I'm going to go over here. And the Lord's like, no, you're not. You're going to go over there. Well, I'm going to try to go over here. Well, go ahead if you want, but you're going to find yourself over there. In other words, if you think about the will of God in these constrained, tight places, you're worrying over nothing. You just have the attitude toward the Lord. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll do what you want me to do. And I'll do it when you want me to do. You need to know I'm always ready to go and do and be. And don't worry about those particular things. But there is something that I desperately want you to be concerned with when you talk about the will of God. This is without question the will of God for you. And that is that you be like Christ. That by far is the bulk of these passages you understand. That we be like Christ, that we be holy, that we walk in a way that's worthy of the calling that we've received. That is the will of God for you without question. You understand. When you think about this, here's a few passages for you that I'll read. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but he's rejecting God who gives the Holy Spirit. That's the will of God for you. To put it even more clearly, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 because it communicates the will of God very clearly for us there. Ephesians chapter 5, let me begin in verse 6. I want to read down through verse 17 because he talks a lot about the will of God in these passages. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6. Notice how he starts. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things... The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In fact, let me back up even more than that. I don't like that. Start back in verse 3. Let's start all the way back up there. Immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper for the saints. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting coming out of your mouth. Those are not fitting, but your mouth is rather for giving thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all 
goodness, righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Notice, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's not hard. It's not difficult to discover. He didn't hide it under a rock or in a bubblegum machine on the backside of China. He wrote it down very clearly in His Word. What is the will of God for my life? To act, to look, to speak, to do like Christ. To stop the foolishness. To let my mouth be given to the thanks and the praise of God. To cut the immorality in every way, shape, and form. And to walk in a way that's pleasing to Him. So the next time somebody says, I just want to know what the will of God for my life is, say, sit down. I'll read it to you. Ephesians 5. It's not that difficult for you. You've just got to walk in it. Now go back to Romans 12 because we're supposed to do something with the will of God. And again, it's really simple. No great mystery. He uses an, an absolutely awesome word. If you'll notice there in verse 2, so that, the second part of the passage, you may prove what the will of God is. Now that's an unusual word if you're taking notes. Dokimazo, D-O-K-I-M-A-Z-O. That word is translated a number of different times in the Bible. Let me give you some examples. Sometimes the word is examine. We run across this in 1 Corinthians, let's see, chapter 11. He says, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. In other words, we're about to come to the table and I will call you to examine yourself. Introspective, thought, contemplation. In other words, we are to consider and think about the will of God in a particular situation. Another time when you're calling deacons, it says this, these men also first must be tested, same word, and then let them serve as deacons or servants in the church. So when we think about the will of God, you're supposed to test this thing. It's there, but you're going to have to lay with it in prayer and in Bible study and understand the will of God in every situation in your life in order that you might be pleasing to Him in how you respond, in what you say, in what you think, in what you do. The Lord says, I want you to apply yourselves to these things. Sometimes it's used as the word approve. And again, examine is used a number of times, but right here it's not approve, it's simply prove. So God says, this is genuine worship, the offering of your life to Him. And you're like, what does it mean to offer my life to Him? 
It means to live in a way that's pleasing, good, and acceptable to Him. In other words, I want you to live according to the will of God. And in order to do that, you're going to have to apply yourself to that. I wish it came automatically. I wish I could baptize you and you'd come up out of that water and the only thing in you was the will of God. And it just oozed out in everything that you did. That would be awesome, but that's going to be how you'll be in the kingdom of heaven. Not here. It's coming. But right now it's growing if you'll let it grow. But it's going to require some diligence on your part to test it, to prove it, to examine it, so that when you get in a business decision, you go to the Lord in prayer and you go, my goal is not to come out ahead on this business deal. My goal is to be found in your will, to be found pleasing in your sight. Lord, I'm about to walk in here and engage a, a family member. Now in the flesh, my goal is to win the argument and to prove them wrong. To see them change. And the Lord's like, would you think about that a minute? Because I really wish you'd examine that thought for just a little while. And you come out and you're like, God, I got a new goal. I want to walk in there and my goal is to love. My goal is to forgive. My goal is to be like Christ and be willing to be taken advantage of in order that they might understand the gospel better. And the Lord's like, I'm glad you thought about that. That's a much better attitude you've got there. But the problem is you and I don't pause to prove what the will of God is. We walk into any and every situation flying by the seat of our pants. When God's not called us to do that, He's called us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice and to walk according to His will. In other words, to be like Christ. You've got a written example, you've got a living example. When are we going to start following the example, right? Now Paul's like, I can tighten it up. I can tighten this down even a little more for you. So if you'll look back at verse 2, then let's look at the knot. In other words, in order to offer your life as a sacrifice, in order to truly worship God, in order to do the will of God, in order to be found good and acceptable and perfect in His sight, you've got to stop being conformed to this world. And y'all, this is in a mental voice. You've got to do this to yourself. You have got to stop looking like and being influenced by the world you got to stop. Now, I realize it's hard because you live in it every single day. The world is plastered on every billboard. You hear it on every radio station, Christian included. You see it on every television. You see it on every feed. You see it on every video. You see it on every social platform. You hear it in every conversation. You're swimming in it. And when I was thinking about this, I was immediately reminded when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Do you remember what he said to Peter? Son, you don't need a bath. And y'all don't need a bath. You've had a bath to the glory of God. Christ has cleansed you of your sins. But listen, your feet stink. They're filthy. And the reason that they're filthy is because you spend 24 hours a day walking in the world. It, it's just going to happen. No fault. 
But you need to realize the damage has been done. And you've got to get your feet washed. In other words, stop letting these things affect you. Stop letting it affect how you think and what you do. You're a Christian. You're supposed to live like in the kingdom of God. Stop being conformed to the image of this world. When I think about this, I couldn't help think about a little girl. And if you're a little girl, I'm not picking on you, but I'm going to borrow you for an illustration. Because little girls growing up around here come out with pigtails and freckles on their face playing with frogs. That's a pretty good illustration of little girls on Sand Mountain. And then they go to school. And before long, they don't like the pigtails. They want their hair fixed. And then they come home and they want makeup on. Not that anything's wrong. I'm giving you an illustration, girls. Now they got makeup on. Now they're so concerned with how they look. Now they're not wearing overalls. Now they're wanting to wear dresses. And you're like, where in the world did this thing come from? You don't want frogs anymore. You want boys. What happened? You understand she's swimming in the world just like we do every day. And it's beginning to have its effect. You send a boy off that's perfectly happy with who he is. Loves to ride on tractors or four-wheelers and play in the mud and that sort of thing. And you send him off to school or college and he comes home, his hair's cut funny. He's wearing makeup and that ain't okay. He's got rings in his nose and rings in his ears and tattoos up and down both arms, wearing black all the time. You're like, what happened to my son? I'll tell you what happened to your son. He was conformed to the image of the world. And you got to realize it's happening to us 365 days out of the year. It's exhausting. But God says, listen, I've put my spirit in you. You've got a Bible in your back pocket. I've equipped you to not be conformed to the image of this world. But I'm telling you, stop it. Have you noticed television? They, they've sewn the most weird things together. Violence and sexual things. Now when we think about that, according to the glory of God, God's given that to a husband and a wife, and it's beautiful according to... It's God's gift to the... What a wedding gift. That's my favorite gift. You can give me anything you want. That's my favorite gift. Thank you, Lord. It's a beautiful thing. But you look at it in the context of television, it's absolutely been... Ruined. It's been tortured. It's been torn apart. And it's been married to violence. And you're like, how do you put those two things together? Well, the world does stuff like that all the time. The world can take love that God created between a man and a woman. Oh, they'll put it between two men. That's no big deal. And you and I have to swim in this every single day and it begins to twist us and beat us into the image of the world. And God says, stop it. There's no way that you can walk according to the will of God if you keep getting pounded into the image of the world. It won't work. So stop. But that's the negative. Now there's a positive. Look what he says here. Do not be conformed to this world, but rather instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now that's a beautiful word. The word transformed is the same word for Jesus when He was transfigured on the mountain. 
In other words, he came out all glorious when Peter, James, and John saw it and absolutely blown away at his transfiguration. God in all of his glory. Now, if you'll take that word and understand God's wanting to transform you into that glorious image. And where does it begin? What does it say? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where the battle always begins. And this is my last thought. Stay with me. It always starts in your mind. Every bit of it does. That's how the world works. It attacks your mind. It wants to change what you think about and it wants to change how you think. It wants to take your mind. Rob read Colossians 3, set your eyes on Jesus. Right? Lift up your eyes to the glory of God, the kingdom of God. That's what a transformed life does. But the world says, no, 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 no. I want your eyes on the world. I want your eyes on your circumstances. I want your eyes on your life. And God's like, that's not where your eyes go. Your eyes go on Christ. So lift your eyes up and get your focus on Christ. But I said, not only does it affect what we think about, it also affects how we think. Now, let me give you an illustration to this. I remember in college wrestling with, okay, there's probably some reasonable reasons for abortion. That's kind of how I went through college as a Christian. You know, you don't need to outlaw it. There's probably really good reasons for that. It's kind of how I used to be, where I used to think. And as I began to study the text, and God began to mature me and change me, and you begin to realize that every life is formed in the image of God, there's absolutely no reason to take the life of a child. Zero. My eyes began to be transformed. When you think about creation, the world wants to conform you into what you think about creation. I, I, one of the most intelligent guys I know in my life, the idea of creation is ignorant to him. He even argues with me. So are you really telling me you don't believe that things evolved? You really don't believe that? I don't believe that at all, dude. How? You know science has proven... No, Adam. I know you think it has, but it hasn't. It's, it's everything, y'all. It's sexuality. It's any kind of morality. Some of you may even be struggling. You know, it, 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 it might be okay for... You know, if, if a man and a man love each other, they're going to be faithful to each other. I mean, really? I mean, that's Andy Stanley right now. That's the largest church in the Southeast. That's what he's preaching conform to the image of the world and God's like, no, 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 no. If you want to offer your life as a living sacrifice, if you want to truly worship God, if you want to walk according to the will of God, if you want to be able to test and prove and examine what the will of God is and do that thing, you're going to have to stop being conformed to the image of the world and your mind's going to have to be changed according to the Word of God and the will of God and you're going to begin to think like God thinks in regard to everything. And I could give you endless illustrations, but I know I need to stop. This is not hard math. This is your faithful response to God for what He's done in your life. 
And I know you want to do what you want to do and you want to think how you want to think. I understand that. That's perfectly natural for your old man, your flesh. I get it. But God has called you to sacrifice your life to Him. And in order to do that, you're going to have to stop letting the world shape what you do and what you think. And you're going to have to start allowing the Word of God and the will of God to direct everything that you do and think. Everything. Wealth. Let me run there and I'll pray. The world tells you the more you have, the better off you are. The world tells you if you can make a name for yourself and if you can achieve things, you'll be something. You'll be happier. You'll be more content if that checkbook has got six digits in it instead of negative digits in it. And I think most of us are convinced that's probably true. And God's like, really? What do you have that I didn't give you? What do you need that I haven't given you? I, I, you're my child. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Remind me where I left you short. And you're like, God, you haven't. Okay, would you please stop thinking like the world in regard to wealth? Could you stop? And would you allow your mind to be changed according to the Word of God and the will of God about that and realize I'm going to take care of you? Y'all, it's everything is an endless number of avenues that I could talk about right now. But this is what it means to offer your life as a sacrifice to God. It's where we all are. If you just came to faith, I just caught you up. To the oldest person, that's, uh, the longest person that's been, I just caught you up just like that. Because in the morning, we all got to do the same thing in order to glorify God with our lives. Let's pray. And then I'll have my men come forward for communion.